dare great things for Christ. Christ calls us to dare great things. In the marketplace, as well as in the mission field, there has never been a time like the present for the spirit of the Catholic entrepreneur. Now is the time for men and women of great courage and great vision to engage our church and our culture. Now is the time to dare great things. And here is your host as we dare great things, Father Nathan Cromley, the president and founder of the St. John Institute. There are many people who speak about the need for cultural leadership. The issues and values of our society today are constantly under discussion. But most of this discussion seems to be from the outside, a competition of competing visions and views that clash and sometimes divide. Is there another way to have this discussion? How would Jesus Christ have his followers lead the battle to shape a culture in his image? In this first of our series, we look at what culture is and try to understand the Christian's role in shaping it. Hi, everybody, and welcome back. I'm glad to be with you again. I hope, hopefully, you're going to like this new series that we're doing. I know I'm excited about it because I want to talk about culture. And this is a question that seems rather abstract for most people. I don't think many people walk around today wondering about culture, but they ought to. Number one, because it's good every once in a while to think a little bit more intellectually, a little bit more theoretically about things than we normally do in our practicalities of life. But number two, because culture is constantly shaping us. If we're not shaping it, it's shaping us. And even if we are shaping it, culture still has a way of permeating into everything that we do. I had the grace of living, for example, overseas for five years of my life. I lived in France and in a, an international religious community where we had cultures abounding, every kind you could possibly imagine. We had something like 25 countries living in the same house. And so we got to constantly speak about the different approaches that each individual member of that religious community took to life that came from their cultural way of viewing things and their cultural way of acting. And it was an amazing experience because we could bring the riches of each culture to bear and to highlight its unique contribution to the common good. I mean, it was a wonderful place to live. You got to see so many different ways of thinking and of acting and of living that, that made life very rich for all of us. But it also presented a lot of challenges. I mean, from, you know, different bathing habits to different ways of expressing anger to different ways of, of, of speaking in public, the, the, the differences abounded. And yet we were able to overcome them by Christ and have, and doing that again for five years gave me a reflection that I'd like to share with you about our own culture here in the United States and then our own culture in our families. And, you know, we, we all live in our own bubbles. We might think that we're just like everybody else, but we're actually just like everybody else in our shared subculture, <laughs> be that America or be that our family or be that our religion. I want to just take, for example, a, a unique sociological experiment in the history of the country, which was the creation of the atomic bomb in New Mexico. Right? It's, a, it's a historical fact that when they made this bomb, many of the scientists had not had the time to adequately reflect upon the moral weight of the decision to drop the bomb on Japan. And after the bomb was dropped, many of them suffered from severe depression, anxiety, and, and other kinds of, of mental you know, signs and symptoms of remorse. 
You could say, how, how was it that they didn't think of this before? Why were they so focused on their singular mission of creating a weapon without giving adequate reflection, for many of them anyway, towards the moral implications that this would have on their lives? And the answer is their subculture. They lived separated from Santa Fe, New Mexico, in this little town called Los Alamos, which was entirely fabricated you know, by the United States Army in conjunction with, with Robert Oppenheimer. And in this town, they lived behind barbed wire. Their, their comings and goings were limited and monitored, and they weren't allowed to share with the people on the outside even what they were doing, such that for the two years that they were there, the people in Santa Fe, New Mexico, just down the valley, didn't even know what they were doing or how many people were there. And in that setting, a subculture developed. An ability to focus in on work, to, to highlight certain activities and certain ways of being. They created a world where you could create an atomic bomb without thinking necessarily about how it was going to be used. And, and that had an impact on them. And afterwards, the citizens of Santa Fe emerged to say, we didn't even know that you were here or what you were doing. How is that possible? Well, that's just in, in, in large letters, something that we all experience even in our own family. There's an us and a them mentality that's easy for us to adopt when we live in a subculture without recognizing that we do. We always will have a culture around us. The question is whether or not that culture helps us or hinders us in our pursuit of Christ and whether or not it helps us and hinders us as we help other people to pursue Christ, right? So that allows us to judge the culture. But the first thing to understand is that we always have one and we're always generating one. And if we're going to be leaders in our culture, that's Christ is calling us to do, we've got to understand what this means. At its essence, when John Paul II was asked what culture was, and he's a good one to ask. I mean, he created the Pontifical Council for Culture in Rome, right? This was a big part of his pontificate. He simply said, culture is the way that we exist, the way that we behave. Right? It's a very simple statement, very broad, but you see, it's a dis he's not saying culture is or defines what we are, but it shapes, it's the way, the how of our life, right? And then, and then later on, he'll say, in effect, you can look at culture as a hierarchy of values. This is something George Weigel develops a lot in his analysis of Pope John Paul II's thinking. George Weigel says that the Pope, for the Pope, culture is shaped by what you honor, what you worship, what you value. And therefore leading the culture is a question of emphasizing the right values and de-emphasizing the wrong values, right? It means actually having an opinion about what is genuinely good for the people who are gonna be influenced by that culture and taking steps to bring those people towards that goodness. If a culture is the hierarchy of values, then any hierarchy is determined by what you put at the top. Right? So in our world today, according to Pope John Paul II and also Pope Paul VI, they said our culture today is dominated by a materialistic vision of the world. Okay, So what that means practically for us is that we're looking out at a world that is looking for what is practical, what is immediate, and what is sensational, what, is, you know, what, what satisfies our passions as the highest values. 
And so you can kind of understand we take a church out of the center of a city and instead we replace it with a football field, right? Or with a bank or with an insurance company building or something that's practical, something that's material, something that's measurable, quantifiable, and that can bring us a material form of happiness. And even if it's not at the center of our cities, it's definitely at the center of our lives. The, the way that we're educating our children, the way that we envision our relationships can oftentimes be reductive today. Okay, and so we can limit, in other words, the scope of the human spirit to what is immediately gratifying and what in the end comes to benefit us in a quantifiable way. And so if that culture ends up becoming exclusive, it can even exclude Christianity from the conversation and exclude the spiritual from the conversation. And then we're left with the culture of materialism. And this is where Pope John Paul II says that we're going if we're not careful. Okay. And this was way back in the 1990s. <laughs> You'd almost, almost wonder what he would say now, right? But at its heart, let's remember this. Culture is malleable. The culture in our family, the culture in our relationships, the culture in our society, these things can change because they're never constant. Culture is a byproduct of the human actions that shape it, and the human actions that shape it come from freedom. And here, of course, is where Christianity enters the scene with an incredible amount of power. Would you like to hear more from Father Nathan? Join the St. John Leadership Network and receive a two-minute glance at the gospel every Sunday morning right to your phone. To learn more, go to www.stjohnleadershipnetwork.org slash member and join for free today. All right, so all of us are here today because we want to learn what Jesus expects for us with respect to the ambient culture. And I want to say really clearly, right? Jesus expects a lot of us from our ambient culture. There's a temptation sometimes for us to take our spirituality and put it in a box and say that our faith has nothing to do with the actions that we have in society. I'm thinking of a quote from President Barack Obama at the time who said that the founders, when they were talking about freedom of religion, what they intended was freedom of worship, which means what we do inside the church, but not a freedom that would go outside the doors of the church. All right, that's an interesting opinion, and that's one that he, he put forth, but that's not exactly the same one that the church puts forth for us to follow. The church, on the contrary, says, since faith needs to be expressed, faith will always impact the culture that surrounds the believer. And a matter of fact, a believer that's not impacting their culture of their relationships, of their societies, of their group, is not actually a faith that's alive. We, and if a faith is alive, the faith will be impactful because the human spirit needs to be expressed through the human body. And therefore, language, the way that we speak, the, our dress, the way that we clothe our body, the decorations in our homes, the way that we eat, all of our customs will reflect the hierarchy of values that our soul has discovered in Jesus Christ. And then, of course, this becomes a radiant thing. Instead of us talking about faith in a purely academic sense or in an abstract sense, we now are, we show people our faith by our food, <laughs> by our dance, by our music, by our art, by our literature, by all of these marvelous things, the way that we share hospitality, the customs that we have when someone comes through the door. All these things become a reflection of our human heart. 
Now imagine if you did that in your own family. If, if your living room was a real reflection of the values you were trying to give to your kids. If the way that you ate was in alignment with the, what you wanted your kids to have in their hearts. If you work from the outside, in other words, to bring a culture to form the inside of your children, maybe your family would do a better job of radiating that same culture out. Why are we, in other words, so afraid all the time of what other people are doing instead of celebrating more actively, more assertively, the beauty that we have in our own families? And a lot of times it's because we have lost sight of what that unique beauty is. We're not proud enough of our last names and the unique way that we live. We let other people come from other parts of the country, over the media, over their, with whatever values they have and dictate to us how we should be leading our lives and leading our families. And that, that's a real problem because when they're doing that, they're now robbing you of this original and beautiful grace called your family life. And of course, it can be the same thing in the workplace. I mean, gosh, if you own a business or if you have an autonomy over a department in your company, you have a chance to set a way of working, a way of thinking that in fact could be radiant and replete with the real values that you have found in Christ. And yet a lot of us are weak and, and, and we don't stand for those things. We don't try to bring the beauty of Jesus to bear in behaviors and in language and in working methodologies. But if we did, well, the world would be better for it. Remember, every time that we withhold Christ from our society, our family, our workplace, from the way that we, we are at football games, the music that we listen to, anytime we withhold Christ from our culture, we allow the culture to be depleted. It's, a, it's not so much like a neutrality. It's actually hurting the world to not have a savior brought into it. And we bring that savior into it by bringing genuine love. Okay, so we're going to talk a lot about that and the methodology that we need to use to fight this battle. But I wanted to begin by really making that, that point that there is a battle that needs to be fought. And that battle is one of how we can express the beauty that we've discovered in God through our bodies. And you see, this is a whole different thing from politics and from editorial comments, which is where a lot of the discussion today is focused. We, we have a lot of Catholic pundits out there and Catholic people out there that are constantly railing against this or that or making positions. And I think that that has a point. There's a value to it or, or, or whatever. But sometimes they can act as if we need to join some sort of program or movement to make a difference. And there I, I want to make a real crystal clear point. All genuine cultural transformation comes from within. It comes from within the human heart, allowing our freedom, the freedom of love that we have for God, for Jesus, for the church, for one another, to express itself respectfully, assertively, and radiantly through our behaviors. And that means our customs, our clothings, our decorations, our culture. I really want to make this point strongly because it's something that I'm particularly sensitive to as I look out over the landscape of the public conversation and I see a conversation that's not listening to each other. You have two sides to issues or three or four and everyone just seems to be competing to make the loudest amount of noise, almost as if followers will be won by force instead of by freedom and by intelligence. And this is not the way that Pope John Paul II went about bringing about the fall of communism, <laughs> nor is it the pathway that he proposed for us for the new evangelization, nor is it the pathway that Pope Benedict tried to walk us down when he was talking about evangelization. It, they had a different vision. 
Their vision was a positive one. And it was a vision that was rooted very much in what the Second Vatican Council teaches us. And that is that the modern world needs to be listened to, respected, and dialogued with so that it can both enrich the church with its advances and with its understanding of itself, and that the church can then share the treasures that she has with it. Remember that famous phrase, love is a bridge truth walks across. And if the other side isn't listening to your truth, try building a better bridge. <laughs> Maybe the problem isn't the truth. Maybe the problem is that they don't know why they should listen to each other. And I think it's a remarkable uh, uh, pathway for us to see the church as a place of dialogue. And it's something that a lot of Catholics don't even want to hear today, honestly, and I think it's to our shame. Instead, people, now we shouldn't be listening. We shouldn't be dialoguing. Instead, we should just be convincing. And, and remember what John Paul II says, the church never imposes faith, but she always proposes faith. Okay, and there's a difference between the two of them. And it's a difference that goes very far. I'm not sure how well you can lead someone who doesn't voluntarily choose to follow you. Okay, if we're here about leadership and you're trying to lead a culture, the first thing you need to do is understand it from the inside. Demonstrate a real love for the people that you're trying to evangelize. Connect with your audience. Connect to the level of the heart. Connect to the level of the desire. Try to understand where they're coming from. And then present the truth in a way that will heal and help them as it should without destroying anything that's authentic within them, any of their true visions of the human person. And so this is uh, the great work of evangelization, and it begins with that listening. And so it's a real challenge for us, right? So where am I today in my leadership willing to listen? If I need to bring my kids deeper into, into, into discipline, if I need to help my spouse to lift up their spirit as we parent together, my, my very first step needs to start with where are they? What's going on in their life? What are they looking for? What are they already bringing that's positive to the table? And then in that attitude of listening, we can find a way to enrich one another and work together. Now, what a model this would be for evangelization in our world today as well. Would you like to start your Thursday mornings with a scriptural leadership lesson? Join the St. John Leadership Network, where Father Nathan hosts a 30-minute call at 6.30 a.m. in all four U.S. time zones. To learn more, go to www. Member and join for free today. All right, so all of this leads us to practical questions, right? All of us want to know, what are we supposed to do to defend our families? How are we supposed to advance a genuine culture of life? How can we stop the great evil of abortion? And obviously, this is an important question for Christians. We, we need to lead our culture towards Christ, right? But what's the pathway? especially if the culture doesn't want Christ, right? I mean, let's just be honest. It's almost like when you try to talk to your kids about going to church, you can try to drag them there from the outside, but then you start to feel guilty because you're saying they're not there on the inside. And on the one hand, let me just say, it's important to take your kids to church and make them go anyway, because the inside will oftentimes follow the outside, okay? But at the same time, you get the point, right? You, you can do so much in terms of force, 
but it doesn't mean that the person really understands. And the same way we could impose, you know, have loudspeakers that that blare out all of the homilies of our churches from the inside onto the city streets. We could close down the businesses on Sundays again. We could we could have all kinds of things to impose the Christian culture from the outside onto our own. But that wouldn't necessarily transform people on the inside. It might help, but it's not the same thing. And besides, I mean, we're a little bit far removed, at least in America, from being able to do that, even in any way, shape, or form. I mean, the, the people today in many quarters are hostile to the church's message because they really don't want to have the message of God given to them. Just imagine this at your workplace, for example. Imagine coming in and trying to transform your workplace and into a Christian environment. Well, how would you do it? I mean, we, we want to do that. That's kind of like something that's important to us. But you'd have to do it in a way that would respect everybody's decision to yield to the demands of faith. And is there any way that you could do both a transformation of a culture, both in, in your family, if you have someone in your family, for example, that's left the church? I mean, what can then you do to help your family to advance? What can you do in, in a secularized environment where we have to respect everybody's faith or lack thereof? Is there any pathway forward for the church in terms of society as a whole to, to promote her values and that come from faith without requiring that those values eliminate every other form of religion? I mean, right? This is how, how do you live as a vibrant Christian in the midst of those who don't share your faith? And the answer that the church gives so beautifully, especially through Pope John Paul II, is that the proclamation of the Christian faith passes through the promotion of genuine humanity. The thing that unites us is bigger than whatever divides us. What unites us is that we share a common humanity. We share a common environment for thought, a common environment for love. And, and therefore, we can enter into a dialogue about what can help us to genuinely advance as being authentically human. This is why the Pope, in his very first encyclical, Pope John Paul II, put down the, the, his foundational teaching around the fact that Christ came to redeem the human person from sin. Okay, and by, when he says that, he says, this means that the way of a human person is the way of the church. That everything that we do needs to be to highlight and to build up an authentic humanity. And then therefore, no one should be afraid. You shouldn't be afraid to allow your kids to be more Christian. You shouldn't be afraid to be Christian yourself. We're not proposing something that crushes the, our fellow human beings or that violates somehow their dignity. On the contrary, we're proposing something that defends and promotes everything that's authentic and good and wonderful about human love, human existence, human life. Okay, so that would also mean to the contrary that eliminating the Christian presence is the quickest way for us to also lose sight of the most noble and highest expression of a human soul, the soul that knows God, loves the Father in the Son by the Holy Spirit, lives in that way. The other day I was in a home in the mountains and they had a sign that I've seen in other houses and it, it speaks to this reality. What is a Christian home, right? Like what makes our, our home something that's unique or that, that radiates the values of Christ? And it's a quote from J.R.R. Tolkien from The Lord of the Rings. And it goes like this. He said, that house was a perfect house. 
Whether you like food or sleep or storytelling or singing or just sitting and thinking best or a pleasant mixture of them all, merely to be there was a cure for weariness, fear, and sadness. You could say, well, gosh, what's so Christian about that? I'd say it's so human that it couldn't be but Christian. Only a Christian worldview would be able to defend that hierarchy of values that would make a place like that not only possible, but probable, not only probable, but what we should be fighting for. When we have a vision of Christ, we find a vision for genuine human love. And if we don't know what genuine human love is, that's where we go to learn from Jesus. But let's not mix the two messages such that we can't make our voice heard in a world that doesn't believe in Jesus. In fact, the way that we speak to those who don't believe is by the common language of the human heart that is looking for authenticity, for love, for friendship, for trust, for a home just like that. A home of storytelling and singing and sitting and thinking best, as J.R.R. Tolkien says, a place where we can sit by the kettle as it whistles and smoke a pipe next to a fire. I mean, who doesn't love these things? And of course, we can say the same thing about our workplace. We can say the same thing about our relationships. Our job is, in other words, not to overlook the fleshiness of the world. Our job is to redeem the fleshiness of the world. God took upon himself the likeness of human flesh so that human flesh could take upon itself the likeness of God. This is the beauty of the Christian message. And it's really important that we not over-spiritualize it or think that somehow we're doing a disservice to the spiritual by highlighting the material. This is, in fact, the role of the layperson. This is your job, you guys. Your job is to be a part of our, of our civil society, to be a part of the education, the civil discourse, the political life of our world today, and to demonstrate for its needs and causes the same concern and love that Almighty God would demonstrate for these concerns and causes, be it about the water rights and, and the, the protection of the environment of a city to the zoning clauses that allow us to, to build appropriately. And all these things that are totally secular are never really totally secular for the Christian. They're all occasions for us to reflect the radiance of the love of God through these things that are material and through these things that have their own proper jurisdiction and nature, and yet exactly through them. What a wonderful vocation. I mean, this is the genius of the Christian leader. The Christian leader of a culture leads the culture by dialoguing with the secular material things of this world on behalf of the kingdom of heaven. And that, that dialogue is done always by what is the best way to live, what is the best way to promote safety and integrity in our workplace environments and in collaboration and cooperation between our teams? The best way to serve our customers, the best way to serve our investors. All of these bests are defended and loved by the Christian lay leader in their evangelization of culture. And this is where we need to get serious, embrace it, and take this as our great mission to show the world that God loves it by loving it ourselves in our own language, our own behaviors, our own culture. Dare great things for Christ. Share your feedback with Father Nathan. Send us an email at communications at stjohninstitute.org. 
That's communications at stjohninstitute.org. And visit www.stjohninstitute.org and sign up for our newsletter to receive updates from Father Nathan.